Hi, I'm Freddie, the producer of the Sayers Conversations podcast series. Today we have joining us a very special guest, and that is the CEO of Sayers Wealth, James Wright. Enjoy. Okay, this is this is I don't even know what number this one is, Freddie. This is number a lot, Sayers Conversation. Uh, good news is we've got someone who knows what he's talking about when it comes to money. His name is James Wright. James is, in fact, the CEO of Sayers Wealth. Good to see you, James. Hi, Russ. Nice to see you. Great, great that you've come into our... Do you like our studio? It's it's great. Yeah. Lots of natural light. Exactly. No, we're very happy. And this is Freddie. Freddie, he produces our podcast. Uh, and the first thing that we ask Freddie to do is actually play you some sounds. And the reason why we do that is because we just want you to feel relaxed and... Um, I like the idea of you and I imagining that we're somewhere where brilliant conversations happen. So Freddie's going to pump through a few sounds. Let's listen to the first one. <laughs> the last one. Lovely. So what have we got there? We've got a fire. We've got sort of, I suppose, ocean, beach sort of territory. A pub. Uh, maybe I, I reckon that's sailing. And then um, a forest. So we might be walking side by side in the forest there, James. What, what? Which one do you like? Which one do you go, yeah, I'd like to be there with Russ having a chat? The forest sounded nice. Do you reckon? Yeah, I thought it was... I thought it had real appeal. All right, so um, all right, let's go to the forest. We're going walking, Frasenay, Frasenay Peninsula, beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, so something like that. Let's let's do that. We're walking in the in the Frasenay Peninsula. Actually, blokes walking side by side, I find, is a very good way for fellas to have a chat. Do you, do you get what I mean by that? Yep, and normally involving golf clubs. Exactly. So I I I, I do believe that. Golf is good for us fellas. It is. Gives us something to do um, as we chat. But you know what? I think a pool table is also a pretty good place. can get a bit competitive though. Oh, there we Don't go. You think? First insight into James. So, so James. Maybe that's just me. So James, you're a competitive beast because it's true. You are. I'm looking at some of the, um, some of the, well, let's call it the portfolio of experiences. I'm yep. going to run down a few of these. You uh, have been the senior economist and the manager at Commonwealth Tre Treasury. Yep. Uh, chief economist, head of the dealing room, head of a dealing room at Treasury Corp of Vic. Yes. Senior portfolio manager, ANZ. Yep. Head of fixed income, ING. Yep. Chief investment officer, head of equities, ING. Yep. Investment <laughs> advisor, best super fund. I was, yes. GM Markets and Investment Group, JB Weir. Correct. Finance, Audit and Investment Committee, New South Wales Police Legacy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice one. Chairman, Asthma Foundation. Yeah, it's my favourite. Still in there now? Yeah. Uh, and CEO, of, of course, Chief Investment Officer of, as I said, say as well. So, James, how old are you? <laughs> You've done a lot. I have. So, are you? do you skip around or what's going on here? Because there's a lot on that resume, on that CV. I think I, I, think I just get bored after a while. You know, once the... The learning curve flattens, and you feel like you're, you're quite comfortable. It's time to, to to extend and push yourself into a few different other things. So I, yeah, yeah. So I've had a sort of three or four different, very distinct jobs. Okay, so um, when you've gone to a boss, yep. and you said, "Listen, I, look, I've learned like all I can learn. Uh, I need to move on. I need to get a better experience." 
Have they said to you, no worries, Jimmy, or have they said, no, 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 I've got another, I've got another opportunity for you? Yeah, no, it's normally another opportunity. I think I've, I think I've actually only Few. moved. I've only, <laughs> I've actually only changed jobs yeah. twice. Right. Okay. So tell us about that. Uh, so my first first job straight out of university was working for the Commonwealth Treasury. So as a good country boy, I actually really preferred. Living in Canberra, it was fantastic. It was yeah. One of the few people, I guess, who, no, no, who I, I really loved. It. I, I'm, I'm with you. I think Cam, yeah. Cam, um, Canberra's brilliant. And Canberra's one of those. Uh, so Treasury is one of those places where you, know, you just get. Tw- well, when I was there, it was like twenty to twenty-five. Really bright. I'm not sure how I slept, uh, snuck, snuck in through there, but yeah. really bright economists from yeah. around the country. Yeah. And uh, you all move move to Canberra, and Canberra's quite a young, hip town, and everyone's involved in in policy to some degree, and. <laughs> Uh, I loved it. Yeah. I, apart from the weather, which was a bit cool, uh, yeah. the the intellectual rigor of the job, the the great people I met, yeah, it was a fantastic place. So um, you you were brought up in regional Australia. I was, so yeah, country Victoria. Yeah, tell us where. I was born in Shepparton. Shep, Shep. You yep. a Melbourne supporter? I am not. I'm a North Melbourne supporter. Well, Very proud. it's unusual though. Shep is it full is. of Melbourne supporters. Uh, yeah, no, a few friends have played for <laughs> Melbourne. It was a Melbourne zone, and yeah. Um, there were two teams in Shepparton. One was Shep United, who had the Melbourne colours, uh-huh. and one was uh, Shepparton, and I supported the other team. So, uh, so the Melbourne colours didn't really resonate. And did they sing the North Melbourne Footy Club song? Did they use no. the same tune? No, no, no. It's a uh, but, but. But when you were a young lad, you would have enjoyed North Melbourne. Uh, yeah, look, in the seventies, they were fantastic, Bloody and yeah. in the nineties, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, outstanding. Okay, so would have been unusual, I'm imagining, for a Shepparton boy to finish up in Canberra. Yeah, quite unusual. Yeah, it's quite unusual for my school to actually go to Melbourne. Yeah, most of, most of my high school probably didn't. Yes, um, okay. So, and so you went to ANU. I went to Monash. Okay, so Monash and then on to Canberra. Yep. In order to be um, with Commonwealth Treasury. Yeah. So you can tell us a lot about um, printing money. Well, it was a. Uh, well, I did visit the <laughs> the place where they print the money, but yeah. uh, no, it was more more to do with. Um, I, I sort of arrived during the Hawke Keating years, and it was Treasury was a fantastic place. Yeah. They'd, they'd done a lot of the the really cool stuff through the eighties in, in deregulating the financial system and the currency and and some of the more interesting tax um, initiatives. And but it was a, it was just a great place. So I describe it's like the Hunger Games for economists, where you go in and you just have to fight for everything because you're competing with the very very best ideas. Yeah. yeah. Um, and people who just want to do good for the country, it's just a great place. I love that. Okay, so um, I see the word economist here and I just have to ask the obvious question. Yep. What does an economist do? Uh, I think it's trying to model how the economy will work um, and we all know that people drive economies and behaviours are all very different and so trying to model an economy is really difficult. Yeah. So economists really are just trying to picture where things are going and what's, what's good policy. Right. When you think, or when you think back to those times when you're at the Treasury yep. and being an economist, Treasury Corp of Vic, do economists, when they analyse Australia, do they analyse it with a particular Australian lens or are they analysing our economy as if it's like every other mature West economy? Well, that's a really good question. I think, I think Australia is a little unique... Yeah. Um, you know, we have a couple of different things. You know, obviously the, the importance of the mining sector is really different. Um, we're a small open trading economy versus, say, the US. And so, you know, so the currency is really important. Our trading partner growth is really important. And then you've got 
our tax system, which drives so much investment and so many decisions are around tax, yeah. that that we have very different, you know, housing cycle. Yes, we have a very different, um, and the financial system is different here as well. So it does have, but broadly speaking, it's you know, interest rates move, government's doing something, monetary policy looks like this, yeah. structural policy looks like this, the economy should perform like that. I've got so many questions to ask you. Um, competition policy. Yeah. Um, have we? How do I ask this question? I can only ask it by um, making a, a su- I would suggest to you that we don't work hard on competition policy. Yeah, no, I think, I think one of the challenges about Australia, the good things about Australia is we've had this abundance of natural resources, so the lucky country, yeah. and we have been extremely lucky. So we dig a lot of stuff out of the ground, we ship it off, we get paid a lot, and yeah. the country as a whole generates from a really strong income base. Unfortunately, that just means that we aren't as resourceful as we need to be. We aren't as clever as we need to be. We aren't as urgent or... Um, and you think about the, the the technology that sort of bubbles up from here that yep. doesn't get commercialised here properly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, when, you go to, when you go to a country like Israel where they have no natural resources, no real water, agricultural land's not fantastic, mm-hmm. and uh, as, as one of the senior politicians described to me one time, don't live in the best neighbourhood... Um, They've got to be extremely resourceful, yet you know their GDP per capita is one of the highest in the world because they just are, are forced to be really, really smart. Yeah, and so we're, we're just not. So here we are in Australia. We all live. We uh, we all live. A, a, a vast majority of us live a, a good life. Not everyone. Yep. Not everyone. Um, but many of us do, and we have a let's call it a good middle class, strong life, uh, and we're safe. Um, what percentage of that of that sort of uh, lifestyle that we've managed to carve out over the last you know couple hundred years? What what percentage of that would you put down to the extraction economy? Oh, I'd have to have a guess, yeah. but but a, but a significant percentage. Yeah, like over fifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do we do some good stuff outside of mining and ag. Yeah, but but the trickle down of the revenue that's generated actually then affects all of us. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? I find the whole thing quite fascinating in that I don't know that we're honest with the, with ourselves about why we live the life that we live. I mean, as in, we sell uranium, gas, iron ore, coal, and other precious metals to the rest of the world without any value added, and that's yeah. why and that's why we get to live the life that we live. Is that fair? Yes, it is, and and we just saw that in the budget last 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 week. Yeah. Um, Really strong incomes because the mining volumes were great, the yeah. prices were great, yeah. and um, and that and that trickles over into everyone else has jobs because it has spin-off effects right through the country. When you've got you know that much tax collection and that much activity, it just spills over in into other areas and other sectors, which all benefit from the same thing. It's so it, it interested me enormously that the in the treasurer's speech last week when he was talking about the income, and obviously we've done really well. Income's gone north. He talked about, he said, the things we sell overseas, yep. which I thought was like, yep. look, we know what we sell overseas. Right? <laughs> I mean, edu- education is one of those ones that's crept up over the over, over a long period of time true, true, and, and true. it's pretty important. And during yep. COVID, that went to zero. And we know the university sectors are struggling a little bit yep. to claw that back. But you know, there are, there are, the, the size of manufactured exports mm. is tiny now. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and... Harvard Business Review, I, re- I re- two years ago, they charted sophisticated economies 
and we've actually declined in terms of a sophisticated economy. Does it matter? It will eventually. It will eventually. So tell me more about what you mean by that. Well, I think if you, if you think about the minerals that we produce at the moment, iron ore, so steel, there's probably a massive demand for steel for a long, long time on the infrastructure spend that's going to mm-hmm. go along globally. So you will have been to the States recently, the airports, bridges. Mm. Yeah. They need a bit of work. They certainly do. Um, Asia's done a lot. Yeah. But Europe as well. Yeah. Um, Africa from an infrastructure standpoint. So there's, there's going to be strong demand for iron ore and met coal for a long period of time. Then you throw in lithium for batteries. Yeah. Um, strong demand for a long period of time. We've got a bit of that, haven't we? We have got a little bit of that. Yeah. Coal's a tough one. But um, the rest of the world doesn't – well, not the rest of the world, but a lot of the world likes to buy it. It does. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, some of the new generation coal-fired power stations are pretty good from an emission standpoint. Yeah. Particularly if they've got carbon capture. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so those, those sort of bulk commodities are going to be good for a long period of time. We have a bit of gold, yeah. which is useful. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of gas. Yeah. And um, we've got probably more gas that we w- could explore – and uh, extract over the next tw- sort of twenty years up through the yeah, uh, northwest shelf. I've never read the. I've never read where where when peak gas is. Do you know when peak? Because we know about peak oil. Um, I think I've read that our coal uh, reserves in Australia. Like there's another two hundred and fifty years of it or yeah. something. So, but in terms of, yeah, have you ever read peak gas? I haven't, but we know that there's still massive reserves off the sort of north yeah. northwest of Australia. So, and there are. Pockets of reserves, both in a natural sense and a, and a fracking sense, um, on the mainland as well. So, and uranium. I think we've got forty percent of the world's uranium. We've got a lot. We don't use much. <laughs> it was very interesting. Just as an aside, on the, on our radio show on uh, earlier this week, um, we asked the question. We do this thing called instant poll, right? Mm-hmm. So, there's nothing robust in terms of research about it, but it's like instant poll. Okay. And the poll question was, um, are you up for? You know, do you approve of um, the use of uranium for nuclear energy to power the grid? Okay. What percentage of people do you think said no? How specific was the question? Pretty specific. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I think... Use of nuclear energy for power, basically. Yeah. Uh, my guess is it's probably 50-50. 6% said no. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So 90, 94%, so as I say, it's not a robust research because you've got to be listening to the radio station and then you've got to be bothered to dial in. Yep. However, big numbers dialed in, 94% were up for it. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It fascinates me how f- I, I would suggest even three years ago it wouldn't have been as big as that. Yeah. Well, I, I think... What's going on there? Well, we, we, we know that, that nuclear reactors have got better yep. um, and, the, and smaller... And, and easier to, to, to store waste. And, in fact, some of them have now got to the point where the waste is actually almost um, non-existent. So uh, we know that if we're going to meet our emissions targets, we're going to have to do something different. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think nuclear is a really interesting option. Um, where I, why I thought it was 50-50, because everyone says, yeah, I, I think nuclear is great, but yeah. I don't want it in my backyard. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I, I think you know, small nuclear mod- you know, module reactors... Yeah. Um, you know, could absolutely be part of the solution. You go overseas and you, you drive past them all the time. You That's don't right. think you don't think anything of it. And can you buy them off the shelf, so to speak? 
I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you probably have to go through a few steps. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're that hard to. They're probably not that hard to buy, are no, they? No. And of course, um, geologically, we're pretty good in terms of storage. Yeah. And you think about the cost of energy in this country, and we've got it's abundance a, of natural resources. It is outrageous. Bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. A, a real failure of economic policy. Exactly. Um, just not managing the transition from from fossil fuels to the next. It's been extraordinary, isn't it? So it, it, I've often wondered, why is there not, let's call it a energy commission, um, so you get a, let's call it a bipartisan agreement of what, about what good energy policy looks like, you hand it over to the energy commission and then it's their job to do it, i.e. no politics. Why could that not happen? Oh, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> why doesn't that happen? I don't know. Is it, um, is it to everyone's advantage that energy is political? Uh, well, I think... Seems weird. It does. Um... I actually, I, I sort of believe that most people, most people believe that we've got to move to a to a lower emissions. So yeah, but I think it's the speed of the transition that most people debate around, yeah. and that's where we've fallen down. It's not, you know, coal is bad and we should be doing this. I think it's just the the transition from where we are to where we need to be, because the goalposts keep moving, investment dollars don't follow, and therefore you get. Right. get these uh, step changes in the cost of energy as we move through the system. Right. So you're in the you're now in the investment flow business. Yep. Right? So okay. so tell us so okay, you've gone from economist to being CEO of Sayers Wealth. Yep. Um and you you are therefore managing people's wealth. We are. Yes. Well <laughs> So tell us about that. Tell us about managing money? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, for for I mean, it starts with a view of I think where the economy is going. So it, it really does help to be, have a have a sort of a macro lens on where things are up to, and then and then it's really starts with a conversation, Russ, about um, because it's we're quite a bespoke business and we we're having conversations with individuals about the way they should be investing. So understanding what their goals are, understanding what their aspirations are, understanding what their income requirements are, yeah. what they like to invest in. You know, do they have a really strong Ethical bent, you know. Do they, you know, do they want to stay out of tobacco and yeah. and gaming and all of those sorts of things? So it's for really designing uh, a strategy around them. And then for a lot of our clients, it's you know money for now, money for later, and money for society. So giving back as well. A so lot of is that true? Yeah, a lot so of clients are doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So we we sit down and we we work through that. And so the purpose of their capital is actually more important to start with. And then we start to fill in the the, the blanks. Right. So what does that mean from an, from an investment standpoint? So how much domestic, how much international, how much equities, how many bonds? And then start to, th- to really tweak it because um, we, we get to see everything. Right. We've got global partnerships, so we get to see all the very best investment funds from around the, around the world. We have you know, our own investment team that we're looking at equities and bonds all the time. Yeah. Um, we see some of the the very best ideas come across our t- uh, our desks, and so we've got that sort of scale advantage. But we're also small and nimble, so uh, it's a really nice place yeah. um, to be. I, so, are you acting on behalf of clients, or are you advising them? Both. Okay. Yeah. So, so if I wanted to buy and sell, you can do some buy and sell for absolutely. me. Absolutely. So we have a we have advisors, and we speak to our clients, and we offer them advice on what we think they should be doing. But yep. a lot of our clients are. Highly sophisticated, yep. got strong views of their own, and you know want to do things when they want to do them. Is it a twenty-four hour relationship, or is it uh, I get a monthly newsletter? 
every one of I think every one of our clients has got my mobile, Russ. <laughs> so uh, it's a twenty four seven business. You know the old adage, money never sleeps. Yeah. And the promise I've given to my clients is, if they've ever got a, a problem or a concern, just give me a call. And most of them occasionally do. Help me out on this one. So money never sleeps. This has prompted a thought when it comes to money and labour. Yeah. That old one. Money always wins, doesn't it? Because money can move far more readily than labour. Absolutely. Yeah. So, <laughs> so therefore, therefore, what does one do um, in order to, well, I suppose, um, protect labour? Well, it's a social question for me. Um, look, I'm, I am, my job is to look after my clients' money. And uh, you know, when I was in Treasury, I might have been thinking about social good and all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm investing my clients' money and, uh, and I'll be looking for the very best opportunities right. uh, that suit their investment style. Great. So um, money flow, back to there. Yep. So where is the money flowing right now when, when you're looking at the big trends? Yep. Um, and then, you know, clearly I'm not asking you to tell me what stocks, but the big, the big trends, the money flow trends – Medium, long term, what, what, what are you seeing? Yeah, we're sort of in this really interesting inflection point in markets. We've had, post the GFC, we've had this really long run of very low interest rates, um, very low bond yields, quantitative easing, central banks um, injecting liquidity in the system and asset values appreciating. So yeah. we had all of this wonderful time where property prices went up and equity valuations went up and global trade was good and and economic activity was improving, but inflation was sort of non-existent. Um, the pandemic, we had a, a bit of a bit of a hiccup. You may have noticed yeah. things sort of shut down for a while, but yeah. reopened. And and as we reopened, um, the amount of stimulus in the system was huge, fiscal and monetary stimulus. And that, I presume, resulted in inflation. It has, yeah. And so we've seen inflation, you know, the highest it's been in sort of 40, right. 40 50 years. Yeah. Um, so you pump money into the system. And eventually, right. eventually prices go up. So if I, if I think about, about the pandemic, I mean, there's a few things that sort of uh, I get anxious about, annoyed even. But the notion of never waste a crisis. <laughs> so the opportunity in order to make some big strategic changes, and I'm, I'm actually talking about like the, our system. Yep. Um, there must have been some opportunities. And you must, you must have been sitting back thinking, especially given your history in uh, Treasury Corp, etc., you must have sat back and said, why don't we do X right now? Because I suspect that whatever X, Y or Z was, that the public may not have, they may have barely noticed, but they wouldn't have really minded because the excuse for doing X, Y and Z would have been, these are different times, difficult yeah. times, pandemic times, therefore we have to do blah. What's blah? What should we have done? Oh, look, I, th- I thought the National Cabinet was one of the best things that, to come out of the, the pandemic. Right. I, I thought that was, for, for once you saw governments... Now, federation is not necessarily a fantastic way to, to run the whole country, yeah. you know, and I thought I thought they coordinated really well in that early period. Uh, so that was that was a tick. Um, I think we were just so focused on getting through that we really didn't think much beyond the crisis. So how do we keep people engaged with the workforce and, and job job keeper was a, to be honest, a, you know, a fantastic initiative so quick. And yeah, you know, it may not have been as targeted and as but it was super effective for keeping yeah. people attached to, to 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 jobs and to and to employment. And then when we came back out, you know what what we saw was the supply curve had shifted to the left. So there's the economist in me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, supply curves completely disrupted. 
and the demand curve was shifted to the right because of all the stimulus. Right. And so if you do the little diagram that we all did way back when, um, all you do is the, you, the quanti- quantity of, mm. of goods doesn't change, but the price goes skyrocketing. Yeah. Um, and you know, central banks were sitting there saying, okay, well, this is going to be transitory. Eventually the supply curve would come back, and it hasn't. Mm. Um, global supply chains haven't reformed in the same way no. that they used to be. Labor mobility isn't where it used to be as well. Right. And so supp- without supply coming back, the only solution, and this is a global problem, yeah. is to crunch demand. Yeah. So higher interest rates, here we come. So and and we've, that's, yeah. that's what we saw in, in 2022, 2023. Yep. So if we think about, okay, so let's think about global warming. Let's think about carbon. Yep. Um, so the globalisation... So the idea that the pandemic ha- might have been pre-pandemic may have been peak globalization, yes, and that nearshoring, onshoring is actually real, yep. not not a not a trend. I don't know. Where do you stand on that? Oh, I think I don't think you would have a single point of dependency ever again in your supply chain. Really? Yeah, I don't think you could afford to do that. I think um, if you think about things like um, semiconductors, you know, the the chips that yep. we all rely on, yeah. The number one place in the world they come from is Taiwan, and Taiwan's a dicey neighbourhood at the moment. <laughs> yeah, but what do we do about that? Everyone's rapidly trying to build chip manufacturers away from that. What, even here? No, not as much here. We're not thinking about it. We, we'll just buy the American ones. Right, okay. And But the Americans are doing a lot of work around, as I say, nearshoring, onshoring, correct? They are, yeah. And, and a lot of policy work. They are. And, and that block, that Canada-Mexico block, the old NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, that is going to be, I think, a really powerful block. And I think one of the other reasons why sort of Europe's um, being so well coordinated in response to Russia is that they're going to be their own trading block, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then you've got Asia sort of sitting here going, okay, well, which way are we going? And Australia sort of at the bottom of the world trying to figure it out. Yeah, but what seems to be interesting for me is, again, in the last few years... We seem to be starting to walk our height a little better than we have in the past. In, in that we are what fourteenth, fifteenth biggest, fourteenth, fifteenth biggest economy in the world. Yep. Part of Quad, part of AUKUS, building, getting some nuclear subs here eventually. Um, president was going to visit here next week, isn't now? But yep. they, that you know that was on the table. In fact, the yep. Quad meeting was going to happen here. I don't know. I just feel like maybe we're starting to. Are we starting to mature? We've we've always punched above our weight in those sort of global forums, though. <coughs> so you've got, um, you know, we've we've headed the World Bank. We've got the yeah. Secretary General of the yes. OECD. Uh, we've got heads of global investment banks. Yes, we do. Um, yeah. So yep. we've always, and if you and if you get behind the scenes in those, you know, central bank or treasury global meetings, mm-hmm. we punch way above our weight. Yeah. And and part of it's because the Americans think that they know best. The Europeans think they invented the world. Yeah. And and Australia has a really and New Zealand too as well have a really global perspective on things yeah. because we are small, <coughs> we're a trading nation, and we have a, a vested interest in in you know peaceful global order of things. Yeah. And um, if you go behind the scenes in those bureaucratic global meetings. Yes, they can be a bit bureaucratic, yeah. but Australians play heavy in those. Good to hear. Yeah. Okay, so productivity. You want to talk about that? Yep. So, uh, what flatline for the last twenty years? Yep. Um, I don't. I actually don't even know what it is. Well, it's basically you know how effective we are 
applying labour and capital and how many units of things do we produce. Yep. Um, now, one of the things about all the technology that we've had, so the new apps and everything, fantastic, um, have we actually produced any more stuff out of that or has it created more leisure time? <laughs> you know, Russ, you and I probably remember lining up in the bank yeah, to do. deposit our wages. Yep, yep, um, yep. So I, I think what's happened is that productivity is probably not measured that well, but there is no doubt that we are not as productive as an economy as we as we once were. Yeah, I want to talk to you about digital fraud, if I may. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So, corporate corporate world, um, consulting and corporate world and government world have digitized. You know, pretty much everything that you know, everything that we, everything that moves. Yep. So transactions, everything is now digitized, um, which of course means that fraud is on the rise. Have the individuals, the businesses, the corps that have insisted that we digitize put enough effort into ensuring that we don't get that there isn't fraudulent behavior? Well, recent evidence would suggest that we haven't. Right. Um, Leading question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think. When you think about what you're asking individual companies to spend and then you've got bad actors, potentially even government-sponsored bad actors, yeah. spending a factor of money over the top of that, um, you know, our defences probably haven't been as good. Yeah, so should, should, we have, should we be digitising at the rate that we are without actually ensuring that, um, you know, the, the walls are up to ensure that they're, they're possible? So I, I, I genuinely think, okay, so... Um, eighty-year-old, eighty-year-old single woman who's got actually a, a significant portfolio. Yeah, uh, they are absolutely right, right for the picking. They are, they are. Yep, and and it's extraordinary how many times you just you know hit the link or yeah. return your details right. or and um and and smart people fall for those things okay. all the time. It's so, not it's not just. You know, people who are not aware of, of the likelihood of being... So is there anything more important in our economy than trust? No, trust is, you know, takes forever to earn and lost in an instance. And we've seen that in some of the corporate... Yep. Um, even even the responses to the to the breaches. Yeah. Where I, I'm fascinated by how this is going to play out. I really am. Because trust will diminish. The, the, more, fr the more digital fraud there is, the more fraud that we all individually experience because we think... That we actually receive someone from a from a brand, yep. Then we're going to trust even less, yep. Which means we're actually, I think, potentially we're not even going to want to transact digitally because we don't know whether it's real or not. Well, I think I'll, I'll plus one you, <laughs> right? Please, uh, quantum computing is frightening yeah. in terms of its capability, right? And so the ability to decrypt even encrypted things now. Could, it just basically could just unlock the keys right. to everything. Right. So um, I know it sounds weird, but we could be going back to a yeah. to a world with filing cabinets. Yes. No, I, um, I, I, can, I can absolutely see that happening because yeah. that's the only way I know that I am going to know that it's real. Yep. It's so interesting, don't you reckon? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, let's talk about the Australian economy right now. Hey, okay. what's your sense? Um, I, th I think it's it's slowing clearly. You know, interest rates—you can't have yeah. cash rate move from 0.1 to three point eight five. I suppose we want it to slow. Well, that's what it's designed to do. Yeah, yeah, it's to slow down demand, which is, you know, outstripping supply. And um, you know, house prices have have been incredibly strong post pandemic. Yeah. Um, and and the whole thing is to slow to slow the economy down. Um, families appear to be um, having to bear most of the pain. 
Yeah, I think I think if you if you think about the the working person or working family, you know their wages haven't kept pace with inflation. The cost of living has gone up. Yeah, you know everything everything has got more expensive. Yeah, and um, if you've got a mortgage as well, um, we just had consumer confidence numbers come out, and there was quite a bit of a difference between those who have a mortgage and those who have already paid their houses off. Yeah, you wouldn't be surprised to notice, but yeah. um, so. Huge costs of living, and the asset owners have got wealthier. Yes. Although there's, you know, there's there's probably some movement in, in asset prices, but there's no doubt that if you're if you survive from paycheck to paycheck, um, your living standards are going down at the moment. Yeah. Um. At the start of pre-pandemic, uh, I got myself in a lather of excitement that we were going to, um, and then in fact post-pandemic, I thought this might happen as well. Um that we were going to enter into the Roaring Twenties. Now, I know it's only 2023, there's time yet. Yep. Can you see the Roaring Twenties around the corner? Oh, maybe I'm a glasses half empty sort of guy. Uh, <laughs> look, I think... So I spent a lot of time looking at um, artificial intelligence, business models that are going to get disrupted. Yeah. And... Yeah, a lot. A lot. Yeah. And, you know, one of my... One of the sort of rules I live by is... Sometimes it's really difficult to pick the winners, but it's really obvious to, to avoid the losers. <laughs> yeah, okay. And, and so when you when you identify new technology, um, quite often it's very very apparent who the losers are going to be. Right. Okay. And and so avoiding that from um, from an ownership standpoint, selling those shares and moving into something else yeah. um, is a good way of protecting. It's pretty interesting what the market did to Google um, post Chat GPT, wasn't it? Yep. Wasn't that fascinating? Yeah. And their and their first launch was poor. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, um, and so that is the American market more attuned to sort of uh, the big picture, and individuals are sort of more into following the market and and picking winners. It feels like that, but maybe that's because <coughs> I romanticise the US. Yeah, I think I think a that they they back the entrepreneurial spirit. So there's a, but I think there's a lot more capital floating around. So yeah. as a percentage, it probably you know, yeah. it might be similar to here, but it it just has a bigger impact over yeah. there. Yeah, um, they. They like Optimus and they back Optimus and they back the blue sky and they yeah. really want it to work. Mm. I think the Australian culture is a, bit, a little bit more of that tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. You know, why isn't it going to work? Let's, you know. And, and, you know, a lot of countries, you know, I mentioned Israel before, but a lot of countries celebrate people who have tried to start businesses and failed and start, start and failed and then, then they celebrate their success. Yeah. Australia doesn't do that. If you failed at a business thing, um, it's amazing how often that will be brought up in terms of your reputation and well, whether your ability to have another go. Right. Well, maybe we need to have, <coughs> we need to be uh, sponsoring a sales event, like failures. We, you know, we could sort of come up with something quite interesting, yep. um, and you know, present your failures or you know, fuck ups I've had or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that could be quite fun. Hey, I'm going to Freddie. I'm going to cut to you in a sec. See if you've got any question, question or questions for James. Okay. So, personal uh, reading. Reading's a big part of, I imagine, your life yes. uh, um, because it's pretty hard to think through what to do without actually absorbing a lot of information. So tell, tell us a bit about your go-tos. Yeah, uh, I, I, I've stopped reading novels. Let me start with that. Because, <laughs> no time. Uh, no time. Yeah. But also what I found was, you know, I really loved um, Tom Clancy movie, uh, the, the books and they were so intricate that I actually started, they started to weave into my view of the world. <laughs> And I started to trade off things that 
potentially weren't real. I like it. Um, <laughs> Same. Uh, yeah, so, so I've had to stop reading those sorts of things. But um, I read a lot of um, – so I start the day obviously reading two or three newspapers yeah. um, and then the overnight wires and I've got obviously got live, live screens and things yeah. um, at home so I get to see just about everything that's happened overnight. Um, I have a lot of conversations with different people, so you know, investment banks, fund managers – but also interesting people in industry and seeing what's happening and what's doing. Yeah. Um, you know, I follow the politics fairly closely. Obviously, the regulatory environment's really important to understanding what impact that's going to have on a, on a, on a share or a, mm-hmm. or on a company's earnings. Um, and then, in terms of in terms of in terms of reading, uh, I will read very left field things. So, right. yes, The Economist and yes, those sorts of things. But I'll I'll pick up what's happening in media and what's happening in digital and yeah. what's happening in artificial intelligence and right. different industries. Right. So just getting a, a really broad cross-section. And then one of the joys is actually meeting companies. So I meet companies in, in a whole bunch of different industries, which which is one of the best bits of my job. Right. When I was speaking to James Aiken earlier in the year, um, I, I just liked his take in that he, he says, I do all the reading that people haven't got <laughs> haven't got time to do. Yeah. I thought there was some, you know, some sense in that. Yeah. I liked it. Yep. Freddie, you got a question for James? I do. Thank you, Russ, and thank you, James. Um, so uh, myself, being in my, my mid-20s at the moment, single source of income, mm-hmm. um, you could say I've got a bit of a, uh, a lucky country mindset right now uh, in that uh, I probably need to be uh, stimulated to start thinking more resourcefully and to become, you know, sort of the, the clever, the clever Freddie. Yep. Um, in your experience watching people sort of grow up and mature into that stage, what is it that makes people start getting smarter about their money usually? Well, I th- um, it's, it's usually you start to struggle because you get married and have kids and the financial burdens come through and you go, actually, there's more to it. I've got to be a little bit more sensible. But, you know, and I, I think one of the one of the challenges, we, we actually don't teach people ab- you know, about investing. So putting money aside, not touching it, that's why super was such a really interesting yeah. concept. Yeah. It was basically you're not smart enough to save for yourself, so we'll save for you. Yeah, well, thank God. Um, you know, and that's that's been an extraordinary, extraordinary industry, um, um, government policy that's really <laughs> helped helped create create a buffer for this country that that a lot of other countries around the world are jealous of. If we called the superannuation savings, yep. does that make us the second highest savings country in the world. It, there's some crazy stat like that. Absolutely huge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. And and what's and, and, and obviously we've been tightening the rules around it. And, you know, there was def- there was definitely some people who took some advantages of the, the yeah. tax free nature or the tax advantage nature of it. But we have saved effectively. Most people will save enough so that they probably won't have to go on a pension if you've been on a sort of a full full 35, 40 years career investing in super. Yeah. So it's basically, it's extraordinary that we've been able to do it. I had a family member, Freddie, when I was a bit older than you, not much though, um, get yourself a house, it's forced savings. Is yes. that, would you still advise that that would be the case, given the dynamic now, how the market works now? Yeah, look, I think the, the challenge with, with property is we know that it's had a really fantastic run for 30 years and we can track the prices based on interest rates and wages. So basically your borrowing capacity drives how much house prices have moved. Now, sure, there's not one property market. You know, the top end of town, 
probably that probably the area you live in. Not Russ, quite. Not um, quite. You know that no. doesn't that doesn't necessarily depend on interest rates, and it's probably more of a the strength of the stock market or or, yeah. or, or global price relativity. Yeah. IPOs. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, so if you think about how, what drives way, uh, house prices into the future, you've got to say, okay, well, wages have got to go up or borrowing capacity. So how much I can borrow, interest rates have to stay low. And when we know that interest rates have moved higher and the capacity for people to borrow has come down, so mm-hmm. that's got to take property prices lower. Right. And so therefore it comes back to wages growth. And There's a bit. There's a bit yeah, there, that, that but... but you know, I could easily make the case that the easy gains have, have been had. Yeah, and then and then the bit that we've had, uh, bracket creeps nicked it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So oh, yeah. it, it's just an asset. Mm. Now it's a tax favoured asset. I mean, your principal place of residence. You obviously don't have a. Yeah. So whatever whatever gain you can make out of it is the most tax advantage way to to, to, yeah. to create wealth. No question. But after a long period where house prices have rallied really hard, it, 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 it's hard to maintain a case for excessive house price growth from here. Right, I get it. Thank you. Um, as we as we're in a forest, aren't we? Which I was sort yep. of I was imagining that it was a tree lined golf course, sort of yep. same sort of thing. So as we sort of exit our forest, just tell us about. I know you love being the chairman of Investment Australia, so yep. just tell us about what your role is, well your role as chairman but what are you doing there yeah so the a few years ago about 5 2018 we we merged all the state foundations so when i was growing up as a kid in rural victoria and and uh, learning to swim in an asthma swim program yeah um, you know a lot of a lot of asthmatics weren't making it to my age um, you know really? the death, death rate was pretty high you know uh, preventolin I still remember the days where it was really challenging for a lot of asthmatics. Yep. And then um, we had this wonderful period where medicines got better. Most people could live a pretty relatively normal life. But we still have over 400 people a year die of asthma. Right. We have 70,000 people present at emergency departments every year. Yeah. And um, yeah, obviously we're, we're, we're taping here in Melbourne and we had the asthma storm event. Amazing. Which was extraordinary. Is Adelaide or Melbourne the asthma capital? They're both bad. They're both bad. Yeah. Is it the plane trees? It's it's the rye gar- grass. Yeah. It's the westerly winds. Yeah. It's the storms that come through. Right. It's the perfect setup. I blame the plane trees. Is that uh, is that not one hundred percent accurate? Well, it's partly accurate. Partly accurate. <laughs> Good idea, okay. James. James, right? He's CEO of Sayers Wealth. Uh, it's been great chatting to you. I wish you uh, all the success in the world, and in particular, I wish great success for your customers. Thanks, Russ.